All right. Let's take our Bibles this morning and for the first time in a long time, we're not going to be turning to 1 Corinthians. So I haven't dived into our next book yet, so I want to take an opportunity and maybe we will do a couple of one-off sermons because I want to. And then it looks like we will work our way through the book of Joel, and then we will be going through First and Second Thessalonians. So that is kind of the road that we are looking to. Uh, but before then, I think we'll probably dive into a couple of Psalms. But today we're going to turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 17. So take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 17. And our text is going to be verses 16 to 34. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Uh, Some of you are going to recognize this text, and I have talked about preaching on this text. And so here we are, we're going to do that. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some in Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with them. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropocus, sorry, saying, we may know what this new teaching is you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. And so all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. And said, men of Athens, I don't know, that that word's just gone out of my vocabulary. Uh, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art or thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. 
Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again and concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among them also were Dionysus and Aracopagate and a woman named Damarius and others with them. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, I do pray that as we go to your word, that again, your Holy Spirit would be the teacher. I pray that you would free my mouth to speak this morning. And Lord, I just pray that as we go through your word, that we will be again taught by your Holy Spirit, that you will impress the truths of your word on our heart, and that we would go forth again, rejoicing in the power of the gospel, I pray. Build your church here this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we live in a time where the gospel has been greatly uh, watered down, where there's been this idea that we need to assist the gospel to bring it along. And in fact, if we don't accommodate the culture or if we don't tickle people's intellects and we can't convince them of the truth, then we're never going to get anywhere. And so the idea is we need to, we need to get, find some common ground to give the gospel with people. We need to find out where they're at. We need to study their culture. And if we don't do all of these things, the gospel simply won't go forth. It doesn't have the power that the Bible claims it to have. And so many would say, well, guess what? If you're going to talk to an intellectual, you've got to, you've got to speak in, in terms that are to their intellect. Otherwise, they're just simply going to dismiss you and you're, they're going to just think you're foolish. Yet the gospel says it's foolishness to those who do not believe. And there are those who say, unless you find a key to someone's culture, unless you get in there and you dig deep, the gospel just isn't going to take. Because you've got to find something in common with them to go off on them so that you can you can somehow use whatever philosophies or ideas that are in their religion or their thoughts to find common ground. And in fact, this text here has been used by many to push that idea that we need to, we need to accommodate our audience with the gospel so that we can find out and make sure that we get culturally alongside people and adapt the gospel to them. And some people will say automatically as we look here that Paul adapts the way he gives the gospel because the Jews, he started with the Old Testament and an idea of God, and here he starts with creation. You see how he's culturally starting. But we would say right off the hop, Paul did not change the gospel or the content of the gospel. He just simply started theologically farther back because he started with people who were ignorant of God at all. And the reality is that the gospel scope is still the same. It starts with the idea of a creator and it ends with the idea of a savior that you must bow your knee to as Lord of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think this morning as we go through this, we, will, we should be convinced of the power of the gospel. We will see the content of the gospel and we will see how Paul did not culturally, was not culturally relevant when he gave the gospel. He simply gave the gospel truths and he let them fall where they may. And in fact, we would say, rather than accommodating the culture, Paul was actually countercultural. And if you are going to be in a way to try to use this passage to, to accommodate the culture, you would say that Paul did a very, very bad job. 
In fact, he did everything that he could, if we were going to say humanly speaking, to go against everything that they understood to be true. And so this morning, as we looked at that text, I want us to say, this is the way that we need to share the gospel. We need to share the gospel just like Paul did. And if we do it, then we are faithful to the gospel message. And we will see that the results are ultimately in God's hands. Now, first of all, I just want us to really, before we get into Paul's presentation of the gospel, I want us just to look at the conditions of Athens as he comes, and, I, and it will help us to interpret some of the things that Paul does. Now, first of all, he comes to the city of Athens. Now, while Paul was in Athens, he had fled Berea to come to Athens, having left Silas and Timothy in Berea. And while he was waiting for them and and to arrive at Athens, he did some sightseeings and he went around the city of Athens, which was an academic and and cultural center in the world and in Greece. And so Paul Paul is there and as as he is looking at Athens and he's looking around, his spirit is provoked within him as he is beholding the city full of idols. So Paul is looking at this city and he's walking around in this city and as a believer he looks at this this center that is full of idolatry, full of temples, full of many gods. And his response is not one of, of, this is sad, but he is actually upset. He is, is, there's a strong word here. He is, he, is, he is provoked in his soul to see all of these people who are worshiping false gods, who have false ideas that stand against the true and living God. It says that he was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And so Paul, just like any good believer, any believer who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, after being provoked and seeing how, and being upset and being agitated, as it were, with, by their, he's indignant at their idol worship. He begins reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And so he starts to give the gospel, he starts to preach, he starts, starts to give the true word of God to people. And so he goes first to the synagogue, which was his custom, and he preached to the religious Jews and Jewish proselytes. But again, it seems like they rejected him. He witnessed again at the marketplace every day to those who happened to be present. So there's Paul, the, the street preacher, maybe. He is out there and he is preaching in the, in the gospel. He's caught, he is again in, in, that, in that place where, where the, oftentimes at the marketplace there was places for philosophers to go and to speak. It's not like our, our, our um, farmer's market where we tend to set up tables and sell stuff there. You could actually just set up your little, your little soapbox and you could get up there. I know some of you are liking that idea. You could take that soapbox and you could get up there and you could start and you could give your philosophy to people. And so he, he began to do that. And so he is witnessing in the marketplace to those people. And as he is witnessing and as he, as he is giving the gospel, as, he is, as, he's, as he's talking with people, he comes upon two groups 
the Epicureans and the Stoics. These were the, these were the big philo- two philosophies that were going around it at the time in Athens. They were the two groups that Paul would run into. Now remember, Paul is provoked by all of this. He, he's provoked by what they are, they are studying, and he runs into these philosophers. Now the Epicureans were atheistic materialists who denied the immorality of the immortality of the soul and body. In other words, they just thought, like our modern-day evolutionists, you live and you die. There's no soul, there's no afterlife. And so one of the distinguishing uh, uh, doctrines of the Epicureans was that pleasure was a chief good and was a chief end of man, and it was a virtue to be practiced. Right? Get all you can. Live, Live your life to the fullest. Get the most out of life that you can. And so it was used to f- greatly feed the base desires of man's flesh. It was to, you, the ultimate goal was to pursue pleasure for the pursuit of happiness. It was, it was the, the very bosom of existence. Eat, drink, and marry for tomorrow we die. That was them. Also the Epicureans thought that the world was governed by chance. There was no real meaning in life. It was all luck and dependent on Lady Fortune. Epicureans are the forerunners of modern-day naturalist evolutions who blatantly speak of the world coming into existence by chance in the Big Bang. And so they, they just thought the world was here by chance. You were just, it just ca- carried on by luck. It was run by natural forces. There's no life beyond the grave. Death ends it. There's nothing ultimately to hope for. And so here are the Epicureans who denied the world was created by God and that God's God's existed any care or any providence over human affairs. So they just thought God, God didn't create this. This was just here by chance. They believed in gods, but they just thought that they had nothing to do really with humanity. On the other side, we have the Stoics who followed the philosopher Zeno, who lived about 300 years before Christ. The doctrine of this group was that the world was created by God, and, and then again, this, it was by the God force, okay? So it's not the idea of, of a God as we see it, but a God force. And all things were fixed by fate. Even God himself was subject to fate. And so that was, is a blind and personal force directing everything so that we are not left to chance but to fate. This philosophy of Stoicism led to fatalism and is a forerunner of modern-day determinism. The Stoics taught that all the fates were to be submitted to and the passions and afflictions affect, affections were to be restrained and suppressed. So you just gave yourself over to fate, you just gave your over to whatever was coming, and you had to suppress and restrain your passions and affections. Doesn't sound like a very happy life to me, does it? Happiness comes from overcoming pain. The Stoics' attitude towards life was one of resignation. resignation. They prided themselves in taking whatever faith brought, fate brought their way. So instead of, say, you know, eat, drink, tomorrow we die, 
their attitude was grin and bear it. Grin and bear it. So there is a fatalism that is there. They believe that matter was eternal and that God is in everything and everything is in God. So God does not stand alone outside his created world. Pantheism is seen in most of the Eastern religion and philosophy of our day today. And so here, here are these ideas. And we, see, we really see in many ways the roots of many of the things in the philosophies that we believe today were there. We often think that we are sharing a gospel in, in a time and an age where everything is completely different. We're not. These philosophies still are around and these ideas are still prevalent even 3,000 years later. So we ha he runs into these two groups, these two groups with different views, but they are philosophers. And so here is Paul as he runs into them and as he gives them the gospel and as he is talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and as he's, as he's talking about salvation in Jesus Christ and of sin, these people hear him and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Now that's not very nice. But they, for, for them, this word is really the word we could say seed picker. It was of a bird that used to go around and pick up seeds going everywhere. And for them, they're basically saying of Paul, listen, you are a philosophical bird. You just go around getting little bits of truth everywhere, but you don't have no coherent philosophy. Whatever you're saying, it's like little bits of truth you've got everywhere, but there's nothing that makes sense at all. So they think very little of Paul and the gospel because it doesn't appeal to their intellect. It doesn't appeal to their mind. And he's saying stuff that they can't believe and they can't comprehend. So they say, what would this babbler wish to say? We don't think much of him. He just babbles on. He gets little pieces from everywhere and he doesn't, he doesn't have much to say. You're not telling us a philosophy. You're nothing but a philosophical seed picker. You've picked up bits and pieces of philosophy and religion and slapped it together in some haphazard way and you're pawning it off as if you've got knowledge. They're not impressed at all. You ever given the gospel to people? Got that response? Right? That's what the gospel is to the unsaved. Others, it says, and some are saying that he was what? He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deity because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So here, here are some other ones who say, well, I, we're not exactly sure what he's teaching. We're not exactly sure what he's, what he's talking about. He's got some strange deities. Maybe they were curious because they couldn't figure out what Paul was saying. But they, they seem to be thinking that he was introducing two new gods, Jesus and Anastasius, which is the Greek word for resurrection. So they thought, well, maybe he's bringing in two gods here. A god of, a, named Resurrection in Jesus Christ. They didn't really understand it. 
And so they're saying there there's must be some new God that he's bringing, some new gods that he's speaking about, but it, we, we don't understand it. Maybe we want to hear more. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. So there was some curiosity there because, because they didn't understand what he was doing. Now, at this point, you might think, well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. They, these people, the Holy Spirit is working in their heart. They want to hear more about this gospel. There must be a response that's taking place here because they, they're, they're bringing him here before this group of scholars in order to hear what Paul has to say. Well, that kind of goes down the drain with the next verse. He says, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Oh, good. Look at that. Interest. It's got to be. Well, you can just kind of hear the mm, go down in the next verse. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. So this wasn't, this wasn't a, a, a response to the gospel. This was an intellectual curiosity, but they wanted to have scratched. They wanted to hear something new, something that would catch their fancy, something that was philosophical that they hadn't heard before. And so they weren't looking for the gospel. They weren't looking to hear, to understand, as it were, in, in a meaningful way. They simply wanted to hear something new. They, wanted they were known for endless speculative, speculative philosophy. They wanted a new truth. They wanted something else to add to all the other philosophies that they had. And so they were always looking for knowledge, but never coming to the truth. So as, as we look at the background here, we see what Paul is dealing with. He's provoked by the fact that they are idol worshipers. He's disturbed in his soul. He comes, he tries to reason, he gives the gospel, he meets these groups of philosophers who are conversing with him, who have these views that stand against what the Bible teaches. And now Paul is about to address them as they call him before him. Now at this point you think that Paul would recognize that these people are hostile to everything that he's about to teach. And that he needs to somehow find a bridge so that he can get the gospel to them so that they'll listen. We'll listen to him as he starts. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Oh, there it is. That was very polite. That was very polite. See, Paul is now coming to them and he's saying, oh, you're religious. I noticed that, so here's my in. But the reality is Paul's not using that as a compliment. He saw how religious they were back in verse 16. 
He was provoked by their religiousness. And this word is, is not a, a term that is used to compliment people. It's kind of one of those terms that is in between. It's not, it's not necessarily a condemnation, but it's not necessarily a compliment either. And in fact, it is often used of those who would, were obsessed by divinity was the idea. So it's not really anything to, to, to puff them up. And in fact, when, they, when you came before this group, you were not allowed to flatter them. And so Paul here isn't somehow finding common ground as if he's trying to compliment them and trying to make them more comfortable. He just simply makes an observation. You guys got, you guys got a, lot of, a lot of gods, a lot of things you worship. You seem obsessed with it. He says, for while I was passing through and examining the object of your worship, I also found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. There it is. Paul has found the culturally relevant thing to find out so that he has a place to jump off. Right? He studied the culture. He, he, he knew everything about them. And now he's going to jump off. Is that what he's doing? Well, first of all, Paul didn't spend a lot of time coming here to study, right? But what he is finding is that there is, there is something that they, they are aware of. Now, you wonder, what, how did there get to be a God uh, to an unknown God? Well, history tells us that there was a plague that came upon Athens and so they released sheep into the city and wherever they found a sheep, they would sacrifice it to, an un, to a god, to an unknown god. They wanted to get rid of the plague and so wherever that was, they would sacrifice to that unknown god because they wanted to appease the gods because after all, it, plagues only came because of the wrath of what? Of gods. And so they did that until what? The plague went away. And so there was probably many altars in the city to an unknown god. But Paul says, I, I've seen one here. I, I saw a, 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 I saw an altar to an unknown God. And he says, this, this altar that I see here, he says, you worship, he says here, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. Now, if you thought the first thing was culturally relevant, that is what he's about, to, what he just said, is not the way to get people's affections. He is standing in front of the greatest philosophers in Athens. He's standing across the group who would be considered the most intellectual and the highest philosophers in the city. And he says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim this to you. In other words, you great philosophers who think you know so much, who think that you have all the philosophies in the world and so intellectual, guess what? You're ignorant. Now, can you imagine if you went before a board at a 
at a university and you walked up to all of the professors as they sat there and said, guess what? This evolutionary theory that you're teaching and this worship of man, right? You are ignorant. How do you think that would go over? Oh, bravo, go, right? No. Paul is not at all complimentary. He says, actually, you're worshiping in ignorance. Now, some might say, but look, they're worshiping God. See that? They're worshiping God. They're, they, just, they just don't know his name yet. And Paul's here to give him his name. Can that be true? Absolutely not. The Bible says that you must worship him in what? Spirit and in what? Truth. Truth. You cannot worship God without truth. Right? You need truth. There's one name under heaven, right? Given among men whereby you must be saved. There's no ability to worship God. In fact, the Bible tells us that man left his own as a truth suppressor. In fact, he does not worship God. He worships the creation rather than the creator. That by nature, he, no one seeks God. And so if you're going to say that he's, they're trying to worship the true God, they just don't know who it is, then you're going against everything that Scripture teaches. No one seeks God. All have gone astray. So Paul says, this I proclaim to you. I will now, I will now tell you who the true God is. And he begins this way. God is the creator. The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is the Lord of the heaven and earth. Now remember what they believed. Matter was immaterial, was eternal, or it just got here by like random chance. And what does Paul start with? The Lord who made the world and all the things in it. The world is not left to chance. It's not just some impersonal fate. It was created by an all-wise, all-powerful, loving God. Matter is not eternal, but is made by a sovereign God. Further, God is the maker, not the thing made. God is not created by man's in sticks and stones, but it is God who made man and everything else that exists in this universe. God is not a projection of man, but God is greater than man, transcendent above his universe. He's not in everything. God is separate. He's apart. Now, this is probably where we need to start with the gospel today in our society. We no longer have people who have been churched, no longer people who know the basics, who have been through Sunday school and heard the gospel and heard the stories of the Old Testament. And by stories, I mean historical narratives because they're true. But here's where Paul starts. He's got an audience that he knows totally rejects what he just said. And yet he starts with the truth because it is necessary to lay this foundation so that you understand who you are responsible to. 
The reason God has authority over you is because he made you. And so Paul says, listen, he is the creator. He created all things. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not all and does not dwell in temples made with hands. God is Lord of the earth and the universe. He cannot be contained in man's man-made temples because he is spirit. He is completely separate and other. He fills the whole space and overflow space. He is everywhere present and completely present at every point in the universe, yet as the creator, he is separate from it. To make an idol of a God or a temple to hold God is mockery. You can't, you can't put a, an image of God and, and, and somehow contain God in a temple. You can't appease him in there. He is the creator of the universe. And so Paul here basically confronts their idolatry. Right? He, he now, he, he's gone from not only what you believe is wrong, but, but now your practice, your religious practice is wrong. Does this sound like a friendly get-to-know-you chat? No. But Paul starts with the truth of the Word of God, and he stands, starts with the truth of who he is. And he unapologetically goes through. God is self-sufficient. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Right? You pagans come and you worship and you want to you give sacrifices and you want to appease him as if somehow God needs something from you. God doesn't need anything from you. You're sacrificing here to an unknown God to try to appease him. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything from you. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need man. He doesn't need anything from him. God is the preserver. Since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. In other words, he's the one who keeps life. He's the one who keeps people alive. He's the one that are, we are dependent upon for our very existence. How arrogant for men to think somehow they are independent of God. He's a preserver. God is the originator of man, and he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now, here, here again, the Athenians thought that they were made out of a special part of the earth and that they were somehow special. They thought that they were something different than everybody else. In fact, they looked down on all the uncultured barbarians. They thought that they were better than everyone else. They thought they were superior to all Greeks because they believed that they had evolved from the soil of Athenian land. And so here Paul says to the Athenians, guess what? You're not so special. You're just like the rest of everyone else. You're just a part of humanity made from the same stuff, made by the same God. There's not something racially superior about you. All humanity is the same. Again, you're dealing with those who, who 
under the guise of religion thought that, and because of their culture, thought that they were racially superior to others. In essence, Paul is walking into a group of people who, if you were walking into a Ku Klux Klan and calling for inclusivity, how do you think that would go? And here's what Paul is doing to these groups. They think that they are the superior race. And he says, no, you're not. Every human being is created equal before God. So at this point, I'm actually surprised that they're still listening to him. Because everything that he has said so far, first of all, is the unadulterated truth and truth of the word of God and uncompromising. And everything that he said so far isn't, isn't something that's nice to go along with their belief system. It goes exactly against everything that they understood and believed. He says, God is the governor of history, verse 26. He determined and appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. Again, the Stoics were fatalists, right? It's just the way things happen. Things are out of control. And yet here he says, actually, God's appointed your times. He's, a, he's your boundaries, your habitation. Here's God's providence. God is, God is moving. God is determining. He is pre-appointed times and boundaries. He decided what would take place. He decided where you were born. He decided the events that would take place in your life. God is, life is not about random chance. It is determined by God. He's the one who decides all of those things. God has distributed people all over the earth for his own glory. He says that they have determined the boundaries of their habitations, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. He is not far from each one of us. So God has placed every man where he is on the face of the earth and the culture he lives in in order to seek the true God. God did not make an arbitrary decision, but God predetermines out of the loving heart and expects men to seek him wherever they are in the world. Now we know that man by his nature will not seek God, but he's still responsible too because God gave, gave him creation. He gave him a witness to his existence and his glory and his power, his divine nature. He put his law in his heart and he says, actually, God expects you to do that. Now, he knows that by nature you won't. But he says you are responsible too. In fact, he says, if you seek me, you will find me. And we know if you seek him, he is drawing you. And so man should find his dependence on him. He says, though he's not far from us, and again, here's another idea that would be just foreign to them. 
They thought God was distant. He didn't want anything to do with them. That he was just, that, that the gods either were, were, were either punishing them or uninterested in them. And he says, well, actually, God is available to what? Everyone. He's close by. And this would deflate the Stoics' pride in his elitist knowledge of God. The Stoics believed that virtue for man was to live in harmony with reason. The rational element in man was to be superior to the emotional. Thus, Stoicism gave rise to a serious attitude, resignation and suffering, stern individualism, and social self-sufficiency. They thought they had an elitist knowledge of God, and he says, he's not, far, he's not far from what? Each one of us, not just Stoics, but from everyone. He's nearby. God is imminent, for in him we live and move and exist. God is close to each person. It is in him we live and move and exist. God wants men to acknowledge that they are totally dependent upon him for everything. If he took his hands off the world, the world would explode. So everything that we do in life, everything that we move, our very existence is dependent upon him. And he says, even as some of your poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Now again, Paul didn't go and study the, the culture. Paul, Paul had learned a lot of this in his background as he studied. It wasn't that he went to Athens and spent years studying the culture and, and reading all their poets to figure out everything. But he again says, even your own poets know there's an existence. Some of them actually have recognized as they looked around at the universe that there truly is a God. There are some of you who have taken the, cre the creation and made the right conclusion that there is a God who made it all, who made it, whose power is to make the design, who has complexity that has manifest his creation. And so some of the poets could see God in creation. And so with one wallet, Paul destroys all their idols and wipes them out. There's only one God. You can't make him because he made you. And you don't need to live in the agony of agnosticism. He's not out there never to be known. He's right here to be known. So Paul again attacks their ideas of God. He says, for we also know we are his children. Being then children of God, we ought not to think of that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and the thought of man. In other words, God is not an idol. He's not something that we can make up. He is completely separate. And so as Paul's come through this, through this section, he has done everything to give the gospel straight. He did not change the message one iota. He did not pull back from anything in that message. He didn't, he didn't try to come alongside them. He didn't try to find a common ground. What he did was actually destroy everything that they believed. 
he actually went straight down the line of the truth of the word of God and he went against everything that they believed. You know why? Because Paul believed in the power of the gospel. The gospel is foolishness. Why are, why are we trying to go out and impress people with how much we know and how compatible we are and how much we, can, we have in common? Because it's foolishness to the unbeliever. Paul says in verse 30, Therefore, in light of what, who God is, in light that he's your creator, in light of everything, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Here's the response. Paul just doesn't say, hey, you've got a wrong view of God. He says, you now need to respond to who he is. You need to turn from your sin. God has overlooked time in the times of ignorance. In other words, you didn't, you were personally ignorant of God. You were lost. But God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. This is for you, Epicureans. This is for you, Stoics. This is for all men who exist at all time that you should repent. You should turn from your sin. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed. Now here's the sticky wicket, right? He's getting to the point of the gospel. Repent from your sin. Repent. Turn. God is going to judge you in righteousness through a man whom he appointed. And again, he's probably offended them because now he's saying there's a righteous standard that's above yours with all your philosophy and all your search for truth. You're actually going to be judged by a standard that's different and higher than your own. And he says you're going to be judged in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And they were just fine with that. Well, he called them sinners. He told them to repent. He told them they're going to be judged. But Paul finally got to their tolerance point. Having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There it was. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. This is, this is where their tolerance was. We'll listen to this point. It seems like your philosophy or whatever you're saying is going against everything. But we've had enough. The resurrection of the dead? Come on, we all know that there's no life after death. We all know the insanity of somehow thinking that there's something beyond what we are. And if Jesus Christ is this one, this one who did all of these things, and he is raised from the dead, then guess what? They're responsible to him. He's not just like one of their gods or one of their prophets who's dead. He is God and he's alive and they are culpable. So what's the response? What's the response to this Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we really have three responses here. Some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And then verse 34, but some men joined him and believed. 
And this is, this is typical of sharing the gospel. You will give the gospel, you will give it straight, and most of the people will sneer. They will reject what is taught. This doesn't go with my intellect, this doesn't go with my feelings, this doesn't go with what I understand to be true. It's just foolishness, right? It's foolishness to those who are what? Perishing. And they will sneer at it. They will reject it. Thirdly, Paul says, secondly, he says, we will hear you again concerning this. Maybe even a more dangerous spot, right? They hear it, but they don't respond. Satan likes to deceive us thinking that we have more time, right? I can serve the Lord, but I'll do it later. I'll, I'll, I'll live my life and then I'll repent. And the illusion of more time, right? We'll hear it again. Not, I'm not ready to commit to that. And lastly, some men joined him and believed. And when we share the gospel, God says that he has his elect out there and that there are those who will respond to the gospel and there will be a small group who will respond to the gospel. And this is how we know that the Holy Spirit is truly saving. And this is how we know that God is working. Because Paul humanly did everything possible, we would say, to offend the, off, uh, the audience. He held no guns back. He knew they didn't believe in the resurrection. In fact, that's primarily why they thought he was a babbler. And Paul did not pull up and say, well, we'll talk about that next Sunday. We'll, we'll wait a little bit longer until you get a little more comfortable with these other ideas. He simply spoke the truth. He simply gave the complete gospel unvarnished. And you would think that's just catastrophic. That's just catastrophic. But no, that is what God uses to save. He uses the unadulterated, pure gospel straightforward. You don't need to manipulate people. You do not need to get people to be your friend. You don't need to soften it. What you need to do is give them the truth and allow the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts. And in fact, I would say this. If you give the gospel over and over again and no one sneers and no one says, I'll hear you later, you're not giving the gospel right. And the only way that you know you have true conversion is to give the full gospel, the full offense of the gospel. And when people respond, you know it's a work of the Holy Spirit. And so when we're giving the gospel, I don't care if you're giving it to an intellectual, I don't care if you're giving it to someone of a different culture. 
You don't need to know their culture. You don't need to know all of their philosophies. You don't need to know anything. All you need to know is the gospel. The gospel is relevant in every single culture to every single person because it is the same Holy Spirit who takes those truths and implants them on people's hearts. I would say this, the gospel is, is cross-cultural and it creates a culture of it its own. And all we have to do is be faithful to the gospel and God will save who he chooses. And let us make sure that we are convinced that we do not have to know people's cultures, that we don't have to get study them for five years before we share the gospel. Paul didn't. In fact, if we looked at it, Paul would, would, would have done everything that we are told not to do. He headed for all of those, we would say, all of those subjects that you just want to be careful and tiptoe around and he went straight forward because he simply gave the truth of the gospel. And we need to be convinced that the power is in the gospel and the Holy Spirit, not in us. And let us never be those who water down the gospel, who hesitate as if somehow we have to aid it or help it or make people sensitive to it. That's not our job. Our job is to be like the Apostle Paul, to stand up and declare who God is and what he has done for them. And, and to make sure that they get the full knowledge of what they need. Paul wasn't accommodating the culture. Paul wasn't changing his gospel for this group. He simply gave them the information that they needed so that they could understand who God was, so that they knew who they were believing in. Let us have that confidence. Let us be as thorough as Paul, and let us be as bold. Remember, we are never, ever judged on results. We are only judged on faithfulness. Let us be faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel that he has given. Then we will be pleasing to him. Let us leave the saving to him. We've been given the message of reconciliation. Let's just give the message and leave the rest to God. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we again thank you for this passage. We thank you that we can see so clearly that Paul was not trying to win curry favor with his audience. He was not trying to impress him with philosophy. He wasn't trying to impress him with cultural relevance. He simply preached the gospel. And I pray that you would help us to be convinced of the power of the gospel and that we would be those who would go forth boldly, recognizing that your spirit works in all hearts of all men who are created in your image. And that is, it is the gospel is your power to save. 
And may we be convinced of that. And may we never compromise your gospel. But may we always trust that you, your ways are best. And so I pray that you would make us a, a church that believes in the gospel, stands on the gospel, and proclaims the gospel for your name's sake, I pray. Amen.